Hello everyone, this is Dom with the Logos Project. This is the first episode in a series of episodes on Mary. This one will cover the biblical foundations for the episodes to come. In this episode, we're going to look at scripture and uh, learn more about the role of Mary in the New Testament. First thing I want to point to is Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So new moon and Sabbath, those are connected because the Sabbath, right, is the seventh day of the week, and the moon has seven phases in Isaiah it says from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath we worship you O Lord so the moon was the way to measure sacred time that's why it says with regards to festivals new moon or Sabbath so this is all connected it's basically the liturgical year of the Jews so let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink so we're talking about eating kosher right or with regards to the liturgical calendar of the Jews these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, the Old Covenant pointed to the covenant that Christ would bring about. The liturgical calendar, the Sabbath, the kosher eating, even circumcision. He doesn't mention circumcision here, but it's mentioned in Galatians and Romans. And the idea here is that all these signs of the Old Covenant are shadows of the New Covenant. So, This is what we call typology, and so Paul talks about it in these terms. Now, in Hebrews, Paul's probably not the author to the letter to the Hebrews, but we have Pauline theology in Hebrews, so some have thought maybe that Barnabas is the one who wrote it, but we don't know who wrote it. So in Hebrews chapter 8, I'm just going to read this section. It says, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So in other words, the liturgical practices of the Old Covenant, the Levitical things that are set up. So verse 3 goes, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So who's this priest? It's the new priest. It's Jesus that he's talking about. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So what he's doing here is he's contrasting the ongoing sacrifices in the Jerusalem temple because Hebrews was written before 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. And what we're seeing here is that the new tent, as he said, is not the one in the temple. It's Jesus. He's the new temple because it says in John, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And then John says in brackets, he was talking about his body. So the Lord's body is the new temple. And then the church as the body of Christ is the place that is built up to be the temple of God where the spirit dwells. So verse five says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So it goes back to what was said in Colossians. This old economy of the old covenant is typology. It points to the new covenant for when moses was about to erect the tent he was instructed by god saying see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain so in other words moses is up 
in the mountain where heaven and earth meet, right, the elevated place of the mountain has always been a sacred space. Eden is described as having been on a mountain. Noah offers sacrifice on Mount Ararat after the flood. Jacob battling with the, the angel of the Lord on a mountain. The transfiguration on a mountain, etc. There's, there's a lot there. But basically, what is being said here is that the blueprint, you might say, of the mystery is up on the mountain. And Moses comes down and builds something physical, something on earth that is patterned off of the heavenly reality. And so what you have is a heaven and earth kind of tension here. And, you know, if you read Exodus, especially chapter 33 and 34, Moses asks God to come and dwell with them. But because of the stiff-necked, uh, the sin of the people, God says he can't and he won't. He eventually does dwell in the tabernacle, but the tabernacle has to be made a certain way, the pattern that Moses was instructed to build it by. So, again, typology, right? So typology is basically this. What The point of reading Hebrews and Colossians here is that Colossians shows that the old economy is basically a shadow of the reality of the new economy. Hebrews shows that the old economy is based off of a blueprint of heavenly realities. So in other words, the new covenant is the blueprint made present. And so what that means is that everything that foreshadowed what Jesus would do was a shadow based on those realities that Jesus accomplishes. So Jesus himself is the blueprint off of which all Old Testament realities are actually based off of. Jesus is the pattern. He's the map, and everything else is imitating it. So what that means, though, is that when Jesus comes, it's not another pattern. It's the incarnation. It's the Word made flesh, as John says. So the heavenly reality becomes present among us tangibly. So it's not, you know, moving from shadow to a purely spiritual Gnostic kind of covenant. It's an old covenant that foreshadowed the reality of God becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us bodily. And so heaven and earth really do meet in Jesus. It's not us leaving earth to go to heaven to the new covenant, which is escaping this world. Rather, it's the new world. It's, it's heaven coming down and permeating earth. And that's where we have the sacramental understanding of heaven and earth touching in the new covenant. That's why Jesus is the new covenant. He is the temple, he is the priest, and he is the sacrifice, which is what Hebrews is all about. So we got to make sure that we're not being Gnostic, Manichaean, but truly Jewish, you know, and, and read this new creation in light of the first creation account where God sees that the world is good. And so what we have here is not a Gnostic covenant, but, you know, not a secret knowledge for those that are spiritual. Rather, it is an incarnational covenant, a sacramental covenant, where the material makes present the spiritual. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to Genesis 1. So, we see, you know, of course, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we have that, you know, heavens and earth dichotomy again, and God does so in the beginning. He creates in the beginning. Okay, and so the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we have, in the beginning, God who creates heaven and earth, right? God's space and earth, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, and God speaks and says, let there be light. So we have the theme of the Father creating the heavens and the earth through the work of the Spirit by speech. His speech creates the division between light and darkness, and so that's the first day. So at the end of verse 5, we have, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So, it's important to keep in mind, in the beginning, 
God creates, heaven and earth, spirit of God hovering over the waters, God speaks, let there be light, that's the first day. And then it keeps going, God separates the waters, so that's another important thing, the separation of the waters is, is a way of explaining how God creates. So this will tie into baptism, the exodus, etc. And then it says, this was the second day. It also repeats, of course, you know, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. Verse 13, the third day. Verse 19, the fourth day. Verse 23, the fifth day. So you, you get the point. Now before we culminate with the sixth day, so it's talking about the work of the sixth day, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we have, as John Paul II would call it, the two incarnations of what it means to be human, the, the male incarnation and the female incarnation. And so man and woman are two different instantiations of what it means to be human. Next thing is in verse 28 it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. So we have this rulership that is given to them as image bearers of God. And then it culminates in verse 31, the sixth day. So Adam and Eve are to rule over the earth. That's what the ancient Near Eastern concept of image stands for, the icons. So moving on to Genesis 2, the seventh day, right, God rests. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. That's phrase number one. Phrase number two. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And phrase number three. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So obviously in English, we're not going to catch what's being done here, but in the Hebrew text, we have three different phrases here made up of seven words. So this is basically the culmination of the previous passage. Now, when it comes to verse 4, we have the beginning, I think, here of the delineation between the first creation myth and the second. So uh, Genesis 2 begins, obviously, at verse 1, but I would argue that the actual literary unit here begins at verse 4. We're going to skip down to verse 7, and it says, Then the Lord God, right, Yahweh Elohim, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Huach in Hebrew, right, the breath. It's the same word as used in, in uh, chapter 1 for the spirit uh, hovering over the waters. So God's spirit is God's breath. You could also call it the wind. The three meanings are contained in that word, wind, breath, and spirit, right? Even in, in Greek, pneuma, with a P in the beginning, pneuma. And that's the same word used for breath. There's a verb that shares the same root for the blowing of the wind. And finally, the spirit is pneuma. So when Paul talks about the soma pneumaticon, which is the, the spiritual body, he doesn't mean a body that's not material. He means a body that's animated by the breath of the spirit, which is really interesting. Okay, so moving on, we have here, and the man became a living creature, right? And this is the nephesh, the living, moving unit of man as an organism. It's, there's no dualism here in the text. So, and finally it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. All prelapsarian, Adam and Eve have not fallen, right? He created man in his image, and everything is good. He creates man out of the good ground, the land. This will be prominent in the 
Pentateuch, the promised land that God promises to the Jews. But the Lord plants a garden there. So a garden, we think, you know, cultivation, right, fertility, life. There's something interesting here about the text because God plants a fertile garden from the ground, which is not fertile because God intervenes to put something fertile there. And so there he puts the man who he had formed. Now it says also in verse 9 later on, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. So it's interesting that the tree from which life is received is in the midst of that fertile garden. So really we kind of have a picture of a womb here. And that's what culture means. Culture is where life is cultivated. And uh, that's why the idea of man as a gardener is the first image we get because the life of the world springs forth from the womb of the Garden of Eden, which is the kind of place where heaven and earth are still touching. So heaven and earth are still together here. They haven't been separated by sin yet. It starts enumerating all the the rivers that come out of the Garden See, So we have really this kind of locus of life and fertility, and everything is outpouring from Eden. And so we have all these rivers who pour out, right? Pishon, Gihon, which is the one I want to talk about, and the Euphrates and the Tigris as well, right? So I want to talk about in verse 13, the name of the second river is the Gihon. That's the very river which in the first century when the gospels are being written, pours into the pool of Silo. And we encounter the blind man in John chapter 9, who eventually bathes in the pool of Silo, which is being fed by the river of Gihon, which comes from Eden. And then he recovers his sight, and Jesus tells him that his sins are forgiven. So we have an image of a new creation through the work of the Word made flesh, and the idea of water and illumination, where his vision is restored, right? And so this is baptismal theology, and the Spirit is the one who renews through the waters a creation, right, a new Eden. So moving forward here, it says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So I want to draw a parallel here. If we eat of the fruit of the cross, which so the cross has been seen as the tree of life, because Jesus is the fruit of the womb of Mary, which is this garden out of which his flesh was spun. So the reason why I say spun is because oftentimes in iconographic images, we see Mary is using a spinning wheel while she's praying the, the scriptures, and then the angel Gabriel shows up. And the reason why that image is used is because in her womb, she's fashioning the humanity of Jesus from her flesh. And so what we have here is Jesus, who is the fruit of the womb of Mary, as Elizabeth says, is going to be placed back on the tree. So there's a contrast between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we'll get into John 6 and see how he uses this imagery. And so what we have here is if we eat of the fruit of the cross, which comes from the womb of Mary, we shall live. So in John 6, Jesus tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. The word for life here, for eternal life, right? the Septuagint uses the word zoe and not bios, which is biological life. So here he's talking about divine life. So in other words, the contrast by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you die. 
right? You lose that supernatural life. And then eating of the tree of life, which was forbidden to Adam and Eve because of the sin, right? But now that Jesus comes, he is the new fruit of the new tree of life, which is a kind of paradoxical image of the cross, which represents death, and yet it offers life. So there's a paradox here that we're going to delve into a little more and try to break open. So there's a connection right there. Okay, we're going to look at verse 21. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And so verse 22 says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So what we have here is basically the woman being born from the side of the man, from the rib. And it's the flesh and the bone of Adam, which gives birth to Eve, right? And so what's interesting here is, especially in light of John 19, which we'll get into shortly, the church in the new covenant is taken from the side of the Lord in his sleep of death on the cross, right? And so water and blood gush out of his side. And so water and blood, if you keep reading the Pentateuch, especially in light of Leviticus 17:11 specifically, which says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So we have this life and death theme which has to do with the blood and the side of the man through whom the woman is constituted. And then the man says in verse 23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So the church is the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, which is what Eve is to Adam as well. So the church here is constituted as the new Eve, which comes forth from the side of the new Adam on the new tree of life, which is a symbol of death, but life is given out of that death and so everything is being reversed here and so what we have is a new creation right and so everything is coming together the beginning the spirit the waters that we saw in john 9 and and eden is as the womb for the tree of new life and uh, mary giving birth to jesus who is the fruit of that womb and that fruit that we eat as john 6 tells us gives us eternal life zoe as opposed to bios And so a lot of themes here are intermingling and bumping against each other in beautiful ways and synchronizing and a a beautiful contemplative picture of Christ's work is building in our minds. And that's why Paul tells us to be renewed in our minds, to be illumined. And that's what the early church, when they talk about baptism, they talk about uh, the sacrament of illumination. We'll get into that a little more as well. Okay, so... What's interesting is that, so we're in Genesis 2 still here, but it says, She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. What's interesting here is that it says in the Hebrew, She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. So there really is an intrinsic complementarity here. That's why the sleep of Adam is kind of like out of which comes the duality of man and woman and and that interpersonal exchange of bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and that discovery of joy of the woman is basically as john paul ii would tell us the beginning of the fullness of what it means to be human this is the real creation which is interesting because it's out of christ's sleep on the tree that comes forth the life of the new eve which is the church okay 
Now we can also contrast this idea of the woman being taken out of man to the passage that follows in Genesis 4. So we're jumping a little bit ahead here. Verse 1, where it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So Eve is taken out of Adam, and now a new human is taken out of Eve. And so we have this, what John Paul talks about as the knowledge procreation cycle, where we know the person through our bodies in the marital act. And it produces not just the knowledge of you as woman and me as man, but you as mother and me as father. And when you see the child, you see something more about what it means to be human, which involves that kind of parental aspect of your body. Your body has a spousal meaning, as John Paul would say. And so there's there's something about the body that is significative. It shows forth the subject. It's not just an object to be used, which is what shame and sin introduces. Thank you.